You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Correct. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, world. Ah, look at that. I didn't even think we were starting, but Fred said good morning, so must be time for... (laughs) Another episode of the Center for Auto Safety podcast, soon to be called Knives and Sharp Edges. Man, man, I don't know. Yeah, knives and, and sharp edges, as we'll see later. And there's a jackknife recall. There is. Um, okay, I still like so- clatter and clunk. I still like clatter and clunk, but uh, you know, I'm a, has that time gone? I guess that's. Well, I'm, I'm clearly clunk, so y'all can figure it out from there. <laughs> I can clatter. I can do that. All right. And uh, I'm Bob Barker. Uh, Okay. So uh, this week, look, and this is not the anti-Tesla show. It really isn't. I mean, we're very impressed with that Tesla that drove off a cliff and survived. Um, But we're going to start off the show with uh, some, you know, negative Tesla news, as happens quite often. So Tesla, their full self-driving, finally recalled. I don't know how, why it took so long, but finally the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, announced a massive recall of all Teslas equipped with full self-driving beta, which is everyone who has full self-driving. So that's right. So you went out, you're like, I'm getting a Tesla. This is going to be so cool. Elon's going to love me. I'm going to get points on Twitter. I'm going to give him an extra $15,000. I'm going to fall asleep at the wheel because I believe him. This car will drive itself. Turns out it doesn't. You just gave him $15,000 and he's cracking up. So, so, Michael. This recall is not that that grand. It's been kind of pushed that way in the press. But really, this is a recall that addresses four very specific modes in Tesla's full self-driving. Um, most having to do with intersections and how the car's um performing under those conditions it doesn't address you know a number of things that we've talked about which are you know the automation complacency drivers being able to retake over control after having the machine drive for them for an undesignated period of time beforehand hitting emergency responders motorcycles um and any number of the larger issues that we discussed that that tesla's posed a problem in this doesn't really address that so it's a little overblown um NHTSA clearly left uh room open for more action and they alluded to the fact that more action is coming on this issue so uh, at this point you know if this was the only full self-driving recall that 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 came out and, and they didn't address all the other autopilot issues we would be screaming from the uh, mountains around DC if there are any. Uh, but <laughs> we're, you know, it's a small recall and it has a lot more work to do here and a lot more work to ensure, you know, not only that Tesla, but that other manufacturers don't follow the same model of deploying technology on the roads using, you know, innocent bystanders and emergency personnel motorcyclists and others of us who aren't choosing to hit the autopilot button as guinea pigs um and you know setting some precedent so that this doesn't happen again as 
all sorts of different automated vehicles and with all sorts of different use cases are rolled out on America's roads in the next decade. So what exactly does this mean? Let's pretend, you know, I've got full self-driving. Is this an over-the-air update recall? Does it disable this beta program? Like, what actually is happening? It looks like it was. it's going to be an over-the-air update. Um, and Tesla came back a couple of days ago. They finally posted some information on their website that basically said they've paused the rollout of full self-drive to, I guess, customers who haven't activated it yet. That's very similar to what a manufacturer would be required to do in a traditional recall, which is you can't sell any new vehicles with the defect while there is, you know, until they've been remedied. So until they come up with a software fix, they're not going to roll out any more uh, full self-driving capabilities to customers. I'm not sure, and it's a little unclear, whether or not they've you know suspended full self-driving capability it doesn't seem like they have for all the other customers who are driving around the road right now with this defect in the cars so there's still some questions around that um but generally you know there's a lot more work to be done on tesla and the way they've introduced this technology and there needs to be a much safer way forward and some standards that manufacturers have to meet before they put these kind of thing on the road Okay, so we see that Tesla, their approach is kind of, hey, we're calling it full self-driving, we're calling it autopilot, and we're throwing it out in the world. Whereas Mercedes, on the other hand, they have a very different approach. Uh, Mercedes actually does what we've talked about in the past, where I mentioned is all of this can't be done in a simulation through software. They, they've updated their test tracks and their, their real-world testing. They're not doing it out in the world with unsuspecting people. But I believe it was their uh, the, their product manager, uh, project manager at Mercedes in charge of their ADAS and autonomous vehicle uh, project, Nils Kartaus, I can't pronounce that. Um, <laughs> but basically, he states that automated driving systems are increasingly achieving the status of a functioning prototypes. And I'm pretty sure we've used that quote before. And we got to repeat that. This is the guy at Mercedes saying uh, automated driving systems are getting kind of close enough that maybe they'll be good enough for us to start testing. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. And he talks about how they love specifications and they need requirements. They're really asking for that. Hey, and, you know, Mercedes, if you're listening, um, our very own Fred Perkins and Michael Brooks put together an amazing list of what your AVs should be doing. So I think it's Neil Kazorsky, maybe something like that. Um, But, you know, what really surprised me about that is, you know, here's a, um, you know, a lead employee in Mercedes saying that regulations are good, you know, that that putting these standards into place, the minimum standards, you know, that we keep asking NHTSA for across a variety of vehicle safety systems are good for the industry because it gives them a low bar. First of all, that some of the the worst uh, manufacturers have to achieve in their vehicles, but also a bar at which the the uh, low bar for the better manufacturers to build on and improve on to make the systems even safer. So um, that's not a common opinion you'll hear coming out of the auto industry, but it was you know quite 
quite frankly, kind of a, a fascinating uh, article. And the thing I think I was most fascinated by was just looking at the Mercedes test track near the Swiss Alps, which is incredible. Yeah, I, I mean, and so Mercedes is the first vehicle that has reached uh, SAE level three automation. Is that according to Nevada law and how they classify it? And if you believe that the SAE levels really are meaningful in that area. So there's some qualifications there. (laughs) Right. And the SAE level three, I believe, Fred, you've warned us about that in the past, where it's the car is driving itself until it decides it isn't. And you have to react right now. Yes, sir. Bob, that's the uh, that's the story. Um, I pay attention. You know, uh, and studies have shown that it takes anywhere from 10 to 30 seconds for a trained air, airplane pilot to take over the controls of an airplane after um, an autopilot decides to switch off, which they will sometimes do. Uh, you can do an awful lot of damage in a car in 10 seconds of unguided uh, traffic interaction on a on a highway or even on any road that you know might have an edge or has a finite extent uh, at 88 feet per second you're talking about 880 feet all right that's 60 miles an hour so a, a lot can happen within that radius but that is correct level three is a vehicle that is extent that is set up for an extended period of time of self-driving uh, completely autonomous controls and then potentially a very abrupt transition to human controls usually when you know things are getting bad because that's when the automatic system is going to fail hmm. so and this is, this is an approach that others like uh waymo and cruise they've just tried to skip level three entirely because it just seems dangerous is that right that's my understanding i don't know i don't know what they think internally but um from what we can see of what's going out on the highways that's actually been put on the roads and, and talked about, they do appear to be jumping over it into level four or even level five. Clearly, if you have no uh, controls that a human can use in a car, you're up in level five territory. And that's where we've seen uh, both, uh, wait a minute, what's the funny looking one out there? Is that the- Zook. Zooks, they're all, yeah. they're all yes. funny looking. <laughs> uh, you, the Waymo, there's like, what are they? There's some sort of Ford or Toyota with a bunch of yeah. sensors on the road. So it depends. Yeah, I'm a, some of them have, have put them into vehicles that are already certified uh, with the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards. So it would be a Toyota Highlander, I think Zooks is using, um, in addition to the new funky car they just put out. Also, yeah. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, Take advantage of this to rant just a little bit because, you know. <laughs> Welcome to the rant of Fred. <laughs> because uh, w- what I've recently learned is that Tesla <laughs> has a profit margin of about 25% for their cars. That is extraordinarily high compared to any other manufacturer. Typically, cars work with low margins around 5 to 10%. So, you know, the way they do that, though, is to first create the illusion that an electric car is reducing the carbon footprint and there's a lot of efficiency. But what they're actually doing is they're putting the burden of efficiency onto the electric generating company. So they're externalizing the costs of efficiency. And if the utility company hasn't stepped up to that, then there is no net thermodynamic gain associated with electric vehicles. But I wanna I wanna point out that that is an incredibly regressive tax on the rest of us because 
Teslas are typically being bought by people who have, let's say, a lot of money, right? And then they get, so that money goes right into Tesla's pocket. But there is then a tax rebate, right, which comes out of the general treasury that goes into the pocket of the owner, uh, the rich owner, right? And then they've also externalized the cost of efficiency and efficient electric generating to the utility. Well, everybody pays for the utility. Everybody pays for the upgrades of the distribution system associated with the utility. Um, everybody does that, and a poor person pays the same electric rate as a rich person. This is an incredibly regressive tax that's being put on everybody to defend the illusion of efficiency that allows Tesla to run at a 25% profit margin compared to every other automobile company in the world. And there's also the, the uh, they're selling, you know, at this point, I think they're selling almost $2 billion in carbon credits to other companies as well. So, you know, when, when some people will call them corporate welfare queens, they're probably not too far off the mark. Yeah. I mean, there's, the 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 engineering that Elon Musk has been brilliant at is not software, it's not hardware, it's federal regulations. I mean, all of his companies are survived their first decade at least on massive government subsidies and you know carbon credits. I mean, that's how Tesla survived the first decade at least. Um, their solar company, everything like that. I mean, you know that that's that's how the game's set up, but. You know, it's a it's a fool's game. We're all losing. Yeah, we are. But you know, let's uh let, let's get them where we can with uh this autopilot and full self driving nonsense. And I still want the electrical grid to be upgraded dramatically. Maybe he can pay for it. He's got the money. Maybe not, because uh, Teslas keep crashing into fire trucks. Um, <laughs> We don't. I, how does this happen? There was a. This was just a week or so ago. A Tesla driver was killed, and a passenger was critically injured in Northern California when the car smarked into a, a smashed into a parked fire truck. They still haven't released if the driver was drunk, if autopilot was engaged, but uh, Teslas just seem to really have a and a, a, a knack for smashing into fire trucks. Um, well, does this? How often does this happen with, you know, non with any other type of car? It, it happens a lot. Does it um, okay. Yes. And it is something that, you know, many years ago, well, not many, maybe uh, 15 years ago or so, we were investigating. There was a bad fuel tank placement in um, Crown Victoria police vehicles. Um, there was... Uh, not to get too deep into the defect details, there were some basically uh, issues where. With the Why would you get deep into behind. defect issues about cars on this show? <laughs> well, you know, it's it's a long story, but when the vehicles were hit from behind at high speeds, they had a, a, a very high rate of, you know, exploding to flames, killing police officers, you know, and these police vehicles were then sold on. You know, I'm sure you see a lot of folks driving around in the fake police vehicles with the little headlight. Um, so that they can look intimidating, that type of thing. Um, that ha- began to happen in those vehicles and also some limos and other vehicles. Um, so it, it's, it happens a lot and it's mind boggling how often cars hit police on the side of the roads with their lights flashing. I mean, it's, it's mind boggling how people don't see that. And often, you know, they're intoxicated, but there's a number of other reasons. 
particularly now that we've got cell phones and other things involved. But yes, it happens a lot. So in this case, you know, we're definitely, you know, waiting for the experts and the reports uh, and the data to come out to say, you know, whether or not an ADAS system or a full self-driving autopilot system um, was involved here, whether it was, you know, clearly a driver issue or something else. We have no idea at this point. It's so maybe Tesla isn't doing worse than others. I'm not apologizing for Tesla because you you only hear about it. Well, with I mean, other vehicles aren't, you know, claiming to drive themselves. Yeah, steering into emergency responders on their own. Um, so there's that going for for other vehicles, but in this case, we just don't know enough yet. Okay, uh, an update, and since we've already mentioned uh, Zooks. Uh, Zooks is the, they have a, uh, system where, uh, it's a very strange looking kind of fun Pixar-ish type vehicle, uh, that they're Amazon's using and they're allowing their employees to go ahead and use them. And this is one that I think I brought up two weeks ago where I said, Hey, how do these guys pass the crash test? Cause it doesn't. And, um, both the two of you laughed at me and said, ha, 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 ha. all the manufacturers get to self-certify and say, yeah, it's good. And just, you know, they uh, beg forgiveness, don't ask permission. Well, uh, apparently NHTSA, you know, they're listening to our show, as we can tell. So they're looking to whether or not these uh, these actually meet the requirements to travel on public roads, which is good because a quick glance just at the shape of these things shows that I, I, they're not. There, there's no way. I mean, their tires look like something off of a kid's toy. The, uh, I, I don't see how this survives anything. More than half of the vehicle looks like it's some sort of glass or polycarbonate. Um, and the color choices. Come on. Actually, I really like the sea film green. It's kind of nice, but. You're being, you're being really tough on the Zooks car. I mean, it's it's only traveling a mile around a campus there at the moment. So I'm, I'm sure it's operating at low speeds. It's not intended to probably have a full crashworthiness suite of of uh, things that are available on other vehicles. But the fact is, if they're going to operate on public roads, they're going to have to have they're going to have to meet every federal motor vehicle safety standard. Wait, so, so this is one of these things. If I'm just driving it around my enclosed campus, I don't have to meet safety standards of any kind. NHTSA's authority wouldn't extend to that. I mean, you could build anything you want and operate it on your farm, right? <laughs> I told you about my so, farm. People do. Uh, and, and, but there's a, there's a limit to what, you know, we allow on the public roads and, and, and what NHTSA can regulate. It's an issue we run to often with, um, issues like crashes occurring off public roads. We see this in the front overs and back overs and a lot of the child safety areas. Um, so this is what, like what you guys taught me last week, whereas my car stops being a car when it's on my driveway. Yeah. <laughs> Well, remember, Zooks is, is an unusual design in that it has no front and rear. It's, it's, is, you know, uh, it's symmetric that way. So all the FMVSS standards that relate to front seat and back seat have no meaning for Zooks because it doesn't have front seat and back seat. So it's, it's very difficult to understand, even at that, you know, fundamental level, how this could be compatible with, uh, compliant with the FMVSS that are applicable to cars. So yeah, it certainly bears a look. Uh, so their goal is to get this out on public roads, right? 
I don't know what their goal is, but, you know, they've spent a lot of money on it, so they probably want to get some money back. Right, because it's designed, they advertise it as a robo-taxi service, and it's not going to be just a robo-taxi service through their parking lot. I wouldn't right? think, no. Okay, so uh, I, you just hit on the point that I never even thought about. There's no front, there's no back. How does, uh, yeah, how do you crash test that? Just throw, the, well, throw it against the wall? I'm not sure. I, you know, the inquiring minds would like to know. Oh, and at this point with these autonomous vehicles, you've got to understand too that crash testing one of those things is cost you millions of dollars more than it would a regular vehicle. So is it feasible to do that or are they doing a whole lot more simulation and other type of work um, to predict predictive type analysis, um, which isn't going to be as accurate as an actual crash test. So there's a lot we don't there's a lot we don't know, and it's all wrapped under the proprietary uh, labels of Amazon, right? Amazon owns Zooks, right. so uh, there's just a lot we don't know, and I think this is at the heart of NHTSA looking into this particular vehicle configuration. Hmm. They have, right. they have ways of finding things out that we do not. <laughs> All right, boys and girls, those listening at home, uh, you can go ahead and create any kind of vehicle you want. Just don't put it on the public highway. But, it, you know, invite your friends and family over and let's just see what happens. Uh, speaking of crash avoidance, safety driving, we have uh, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety is talking about. And I think we've touched on this briefly in the past where cars with ADAS systems and radar systems and automatic emergency braking are a lot more expensive to repair when you get into an accident. So in an article we'll put a link to, uh, for example, a simple windshield replacement costs as little as $250, but a separate study found that vehicles equipped with front crash prevention were more, much more likely to have glass claims of, class claims of $1,000 or more. And much the more likely the i can't speak this morning oh basically the higher costs are related to calibrating those systems to make sure they're performing reliably when they go back out on the road um so yeah it's not a windshield anymore i guess it's a windshield that's embedded with crash avoidance tech so it's going to be a little more expensive um but i think we see this in bumpers i mean there's sensors and doors and all over the cars depending on the make and model um that have to be calibrated to make sure they're functioning correctly um this is also kind of one of my pet peeves about this idea that everyone's going to have an autonomous vehicle in their driveway the the sensors required for those and the maintenance required i think is going to be beyond uh your normal uh owner's capability well, it's it's well beyond owner's capability, and it's well beyond most dealers' capability. Calibration uh, of these sensors and uh, safety devices requires facilities and skills that are far beyond what you typically find even in a dealership. So uh, I think what will probably happen is that there will be some metropolitan areas that have one focal point for calibration of these sensors. Um and, you know, especially trained personnel to do that. But it's just, uh, and I'm guessing here, it's beyond the financial capabilities of smaller dealerships and any independent private uh, repair shop to have that calibration capability in hand. And calibrating them, you know, running them without calibration is chancy. 
doing the calibration wrong is a really bad idea. So this is something that's, that's, that's got to be addressed um, carefully and seriously. And it's going to require a lot of investment and ongoing cost for any facility that's going to maintain an up-to-date calibration capability. And part of that problem is very similar to the problem we see with emergency responders and firemen and stuff with electric vehicles. There's just not... Um, there's not a lot of information out there. Well, basically, there's a lot of different systems that are made. There's different sensor systems and different crash avoidance systems on every make and sometimes every model vehicle within a manufacturer's lines. And so if you are an independent facility, you have to learn everybody's stuff and how to calibrate it um, before you can 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 work on the vehicle kind of like if you're showing up at a crash and he's an emergency responder you have a lot of boxes you need to check before you can approach the vehicles and do certain things um because there's so many different there's very little standardization and there's so many different ways where batteries are cut off and then that sort of thing so it's a it, it's a complicated area and that's probably why it's going to raise the price you know of these types of repairs up significantly so we're going to play a little game called Anthony asks a bunch of naive questions. So that's, right, that's, that's every week. Yeah, exactly. So right now, um, how often do I need to get like my front end aligned? Like I can tell if my car is pulling to the right, that's obvious to me or pulling to the left and I can go, Oh, I need to get this fixed. Um, and I imagine like when I get like oil change done and they like, Hey, time to change an air filter. They can, probably spot to see if there's something misaligned is, is that fair enough is that yes yeah yeah there are visual checks you can take right. on tire wear and what have you okay so uh how often do i need my radar system aligned well i mean how many how many bumps did you hit yesterday <laughs> well see that's the question like seriously like is that i mean because i got a small car it's got small tires and some of these potholes feel like oh i i really hit that one good is that knocking radar systems and and ultrasonic systems out of alignment it, probably not so much because they have a, a kind of squishy field of view requirement but for optical systems, like uh, many cars do, anything that uses a camera, it becomes much more critical, and they're much more susceptible to vibration. I think the same would be true for any LiDAR system, because you've got to have uh, you know very careful pointing so that you know where you are relative to the objects that the LiDAR is determining or the optical systems is determining. But the radar and the sonar... Uh, they don't have that same kind of resolution, so I suspect that they're more resistant to vibration. But, you know, somebody crashes into your car, somebody kicks your fender, and a lot of things can happen. Um, they, may, they may need calibration. What that really leads to, though, is that the cars have a lot of, or especially cars with an ADAS or an, AD, or an, an AV system, have lots of safety-critical and life-critical capabilities that are completely hidden to the owner and the user like, what, um, what do you these, mean? well if you're driving down the road you have an adas system right you put you put on adaptive cruise control right mm -hmm. and you sit back fat dumb and happy your car is doing what it's supposed to do well there's a safety critical function in there because if it fails you're going to go crashing into another car right so let's say that you're you're coming up on another car 
And the part of the logic that says, well, I'm close enough now, what if that fails? Oh, you're screwed. You're going to run into another car because you've been reading Moby Dick while you're driving the car rather than paying attention to the car, right? So that's a that's a hidden logical feature that is safety critical. There is no way for you to know that that safety critical logical feature has failed until you crash into something. Okay, so what we should be seeing is we should be seeing built-in diagnostics and built-in test procedures in all of these ADA systems so that the hidden logic and the hidden features that are safety critical that can kill you if they fail are monitored and reported. And so you have advanced notice if, if something doesn't work right. So right when you turn on your cruise control, you would want to know that cruise control is working. There should be built-in diagnostics in there that tests all the different features to say, yeah, this is good enough to go and it's fine. Conversely, you should be notified if some part of that logical chain, whether it's the computer or the sensor or an adaptive control or, or who knows what, isn't working properly and you're endangering yourself. This is one of the issues we talked about in relation to safety inspections of cars. Uh, it used to be that all of the safety critical features on a car were visually inspectable, right? Because you didn't have any logical stuff. So the inspection comes in, your tires look good, your windshield wipers work, honk the horn, thank you. Everything <laughs> works, right? Right. Uh, that's not the case for cars that have a lot of this capability hidden inside of a computer. So we need to, the industry, the world needs to find some way of reporting the status and capability of these hidden functions that are, can kill you before they do kill you, right? A lot of things can happen. A uh, cosmic ray can hit your computer and cause what's called a single event upset and ruin the memory. You should know, you the user, you the occupant of the car should know that that single event upset has happened, that the memory is corrupted, and that whatever systems that rely on that memory are no longer working properly. All right. So uh, wrap your car in tinfoil, avoid cosmic rays. Yeah, and, next time I have a brain fart on the podcast, I'm blaming a cosmic ray. Well, I figure that's why you're wearing that colander on your head right now. Really, really <laughs> thick aluminum foil, by the way, is what you need. Hey, uh, heavy you know, maybe several meters thick. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, again, we need industry to uh, come up with some basic regulations here and some basic standards, it sounds like. I don't think industry is going to come up with those regulations. I think that uh, comes from somewhere else. No, like, would that uh, be NHTSA? Have you heard of this co concept called uh, government? Hey, man, get them off my Medicare. Uh, okay. In different news, Honda Kia. Let's go back to those fun folks. Um, we've talked right. about this a number of times. The TikTok generation has not only come up with some fun dance moves. I've never been on TikTok. I don't know what's there. Uh, but they've come up with ways to steal your Honda and Kia. Kia. Uh, and thankfully, they uh, it got so bad to the point where insurance companies are like, yeah, we're no longer insuring these cars because uh, anyone with a USB cable can steal it. And so now they've uh, come up with theft deterrent software for millions of their vehicles that lack an immobilizer. And oh, they're so kind. They provided this fix free of charge to vehicle owners. Um, the software updates the theft alarm software logic to extend the length of the alarm sound from 30 seconds to one minute. And requires the key to be in the ignition switch to turn the vehicle on. 
Well, oh, I, you know, I started this thinking they had a good solution. This is ridiculous. The, the, the alarm is the alarm part is probably ridiculous. It's not as ridiculous as them charging owners five hundred dollars over the last few months to to prevent this issue by installing uh, alarm systems and things that really didn't work. So now at least they're developing and are introducing this software that's functionally creating kind of a software immobilizer for these vehicles and is going to prevent them from being started with a USB cable. Um, but the problem here is, you know, it, I don't think there's any denying that, you know, car theft and related consequences on our roads is a public safety issue that, you know, that's dangerous to a lot of people on the roads and that this should have been conducted as a recall. I mean, it's just a consumer satisfaction program, which means it, you know, owners aren't required to be notified and bugged about it until they, they get the fix performed. Although in this case, you know, they have a little more motivation to do so because if you do get the fix performed, you get a sticker that you can put on your windshield that lets would-be thieves know that you've been protected against the TikTok hack. So, you know, it's it's a much better, it's probably what they should have done a few months ago in response to this, and they wouldn't have gotten heat from NHTSA and the insurance industry. Um, But, you know, now that they have, you know, it's, it's not being rolled out in a way that ensures that all consumers are going to get notified about it and, and, and get the fix. You know, I think the sticker is a great idea. I, I think that car thieves generally inspect the signage on a car very carefully before they try to break into it. So this is, this is going to be very beneficial, but I also want to want to mention something about over the air updates. It used to be, and all of our listeners, I'm sure, have gone to our website, put in the VIN for their car, and have found out whether or not there are any open recalls um, that are are applicable to their car. One of the problems with over-the-air updates, and this applies to Tesla as well, is that those updates don't confirm that your individual vehicle has gotten the update installed, right? So... What used to be unambiguous about whether or not there are any open recalls on your car is now being destroyed or invalidated by the use of over-the-air recalls and informal over-the-air recalls um, to enhance the safety of your car or to affect the safety of your car. It's no longer true that you can go to the NHTSA uh, website put in your VIN and find out exactly what the open recalls are on your vehicle. They may be installed, they may not be installed, but you know, they're one of the consequences of this over the air update is that they may be destroying a valuable resource for consumers to find out if their car is in fact in need of a safety uh, repair. Yeah. And you, you, you saw this last week with, uh, I, I, you know, Elon once again coming out and saying, you know, this shouldn't be a recall. He seems to think that a recall is somehow only limited to physical repairs of a vehicle where you bring it into a shop and fix something and send it back out. Well, that's not what a recall is. A recall is anytime there is a unreasonable risk to safety and there is any type of repair software over the air, otherwise that is applied to it. So, um, even though NHTSA has been incredibly slow updating their recall regulations, there's still no real um, 
impetus right now to, to i mean there's no reason for us to stop calling things recalls if they're only going to apply to over the air updates and software uh type issues nitsa needs to update its standards to take into account the fact that cars are computer on we computers on wheels and we've got more software going into them every day i mean the regulations need to be rewritten here and on that point I think that uh, Tesla is correct in some ways. They they do need to take account for the, this this new way of repairing vehicles and alerting owners. But the fundamentals need to stay the same. People need to be alerted to these recalls. They need to know if there's a safety issue with their vehicle without question. And they have to be told about these issues. So if you want to find out, you can go to autosafety.org, go to the vehicle safety check, find your make me year model, and you can find those what recalls are happening right now in your car and you can subscribe for updates. It's great. Forget your VIN number. I don't think there's a way to search for VIN number on our site. I know there isn't. Um, well, there, there is. There's a there's an area where we're tied into the Carfax uh, NHTSA, the same search that, that uh, NHTSA uses on your VIN. Okay, well, um, there's there, yeah. ways vehicle safety check. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go there. That's much easier. Find your make your model. Um, and you'd know if you brought your vehicle in and had something replaced. Uh, so, yeah, do that. And I think with that, I think it's time for a recall roundup. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. Speaking of Hyundai Kia, Hyundai exploding seatbelt pretensioners. Oh, my God. This is thousands, over 65,000 vehicles. Uh, the subject vehicles are equipped with driver slash passenger pyrotechnic type seat. No. What is happening? They have exploding things inside my car that will tighten the seatbelt for me. And this is for uh, the 2021 to 23 Genesis G80s, the GV60s, the GV70, GV. Basically, you got a Genesis. I mean, congratulations. They look very nice. Um, but they're going to explode on you. No, nah, they're not going to explode on you. But there's a problem with the seatbelt pretensioner. Is that correct? That's right. They, you know, they are exploding. And this is. One in a series of recalls on this issue by Hyundai. They started recalling these vehicles last year, I think. And they've continued to do recall after recall after recall. I think this is the seventh in the series. And this one was, I think, influenced by NHTSA pretty clearly because NHTSA opened up a recall query into the problem. And so these, they're not exploding like Takata airbags where you're going to get shrapnel in you, or is it that dangerous? I, I, I think the main fear here is possible fire. Mm. Um, but yes, I mean, if you have an exploding pretensioner near you, let's, I haven't looked at the uh, consequence summary to see what's happening. Give me one. The pretensioners pretension are typically not right in front of your face. Uh, so even if they do rupture, they're unlikely to. Uh, you know, have the same kind of consequence, but you don't want to get your foot near it. You don't want to get any body part near it if it's going to uh, rupture due to excess pressure. Mm. And again, these pretensioners, they can use whatever explosive they want. There's no regulations around that. That's correct. <laughs> America. Well, actually, that's in worldwide, folks. Explosions all around you. Uh, Nissan. So, so to be clear, they don't call it explosive. They call it uh, energetic material. Oh, uh, Nissan called it pyrotechnics, and uh, Pyro it just, uh, yes, 
<laughs> pyrotechnics. I expect Laser Floyd at the same time. <laughs> I don't want pyrotechnics in my car. It's crazy. Uh, Nissan is recalling more than 700,000 SUVs over a concern that a defect with the keys can cause them to shut off while driving. That sounds like fun. So uh, Nissan is recalling uh, oh, 712, th- over 700,000 cars. Uh, these are uh, the Rogue Sports, the Rogues, and the problem is with Michael h- hinted earlier, a jackknife key set. Yeah, so these are the, the, I've got a jackknife key for a Volkswagen Jetta from 2019. It's basically the switchblade is what it, I would, I would more accurately describe it as when you click a button and your key pops out. Oh. And what appears to be happening with these keys over time is that the mechanism that holds the, the switchblade <laughs> directly straight begins to weaken and so i don't know if there's a spring or whatever there is in there and so the key starts to hang down near i guess where your knee or other parts of the driver might come in contact with it and they're it's turning off the car when the driver's making contact it's very similar to some of the issues we saw with the gm ignition switches where people were either putting a lot of things on their keychain and it was causing the ignition to turn off or, you know, keys were being bumped by passengers, all sorts of different, different circumstances contributed to that problem. But the results are the same here. You're driving and your car cuts off all of a sudden. And depending on the kind of vehicle you have, in this case, it's the Nissan Rogue, certain vehicle systems are going to turn off. You're losing power. You're losing power steering. You might lose the ability for your airbags to deploy. There are a lot of things that can happen when the vehicle loses power like that. So it's it's a big recall, um, about 700,000 vehicles and a pretty significant concern. Um, it's one of those recalls that that's really important that people monitor and get fixed as soon as possible. And again, the recall fix is free. Yeah, but you know, it's it's interesting that cars have been using keys for over a hundred years. It's interesting to me that it's taking this long to work out the kinks and how to put a key into a car. I mean, is what does that tell us about the advancement of technology into AVs? Uh, you know, it's it's going to be a while before these things, all these technical issues, settle down. If it takes 100 years plus to figure out how to put a ignition key in a car, uh, I, I don't think that bodes well for how long it's going to take to work the keys out of kinks out of uh, a brand new, very complex system. And I, and I would even suggest here that maybe they figured out the whole key system many years ago, but they've been trying to make it so uh cost less over time and so these issues have arisen because of you know the trying to make the price of the key system go down while also at the same time you know keys look a lot cooler than they used to um so there's a lot of design that goes into them but uh you know keeping the costs down and installing when in this case it looks like a bad mechanism to keep the key in a safe position um you kind of see where that cost-cutting approach can have negative effects on vehicle safety. It was the same thing in the team ignition switch. They were doing a, it, there was a small spring uh, in the ignition switch system that was uh, 
for pennies uh, was not replaced with something that could have been a lot stronger. And that resulted in, in, in you know, 200 minimum deaths and a lot of injuries. Well, metal springs have only been used for about 500 years, so I can see why it's still a development <laughs> item. Hey, it takes time to get things right. Or to get them, to get them cheap. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Fred working out some kinks, it's time for the Tao of Fred. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, good morning. Yeah. Good morning again. So uh, we're going back to the AV Bill of Rights. We're so. going back to the AV Bill of Rights. And the third article in that is AVs shall not prejudice for or against any group of living persons with respect to any other group. Uh, this has a, a, a few different aspects to it. But first is that we've all heard how AVs are going to make it possible for people with any kind of uh, mobility challenge to get around, right? You're going to put your three-year-old in it to go to her violin lesson across town. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, people who are in wheelchairs will be able to use these. People who have difficulties driving, uh, no problem for them because they'll be able to just get in and tell the car where to go and everything will be fine. Well, okay, let's take these claims at face value and make sure that the AVs, in fact, do not discriminate against persons with physical or mental disabilities that might otherwise restrict their uh, ability to travel. There's another aspect to this, too, though, that the logic in the vehicles could potentially prejudice one group of people against another. So how would this work? Well, let's say that you've got an AV that is designed for traveling in an urban environment. And you've designed it somehow so that it works perfectly well for almost everybody, but it works really poorly for somebody else. So, for example, in any emergency situation, it looks for a blonde-haired child and heads towards that blonde-haired child rather than heading towards uh, a large group of people or people with indeterminate hair color. Um, that would not be acceptable, even though the overall safety profile of the vehicle might be an enhancement compared to a conventional vehicle in that same environment. So you can't, you know, these should not be allowed to prejudice any one group against any other group, even if it results in an overall reduction in the uh, hazard associated with the vehicle. Does that make any sense? Is that clear? It was very specific against blonde-haired children, but I think in in what we've seen a lot with AI systems and whatnot is they've a, they have a uh, racial prejudice problem now, whereas they have a tough time identifying uh, black skin or darker skin people. So this would be the similar type of thing that the AVs have to be able to recognize this is a human versus you know a not a human, and humans come in all shapes, colors, and sizes, and you want to design do. a system to aim but for blonde-haired children. But specifically, you should not be able to uh, increase the hazard to any one group of people by reducing the hazard to any other group of people. Got it. And I, I use blonde-haired children just to make sure that um, everybody was outraged by the whole idea that that might be a problem. <laughs> just, uh, um, AVs. Yeah, blonde-haired children. Oh, sorry. Just... 
moment. AVs uh, should not discriminate between acceptable users on the basis of their ethnicity, race, sex, age, or national origin. So if there's a uh, an AV taxi, right, roaming the streets of New York City looking for passengers, it should not be allowed to to determine which passengers it will pick up based upon any observable characteristic of those passengers, right? It should be open to everybody. Unlike current cab drivers in New York City. Right. As they're required to do. And my understanding is that that is not a perfect system and it will occasionally happen that prejudices do creep in, but AVs should be designed to not let any prejudices creep in. Um, and a corollary to that is that the optical identification of humans as users or vulnerable road users may not provide different results based on skin color, height, weight, or any other observable characteristics. So somebody cross, somebody in a crosswalk should not be put at comparative risk relative to everybody else just because of how they look or what their characteristics are. Um, and finally, the final point I've got here is that AVs must assure safe ingress and egress of passengers, people getting in and out of the car, without regard to their ability or disability. So let's say that somebody has a mobility problem, they're trying to get into the AV, but the AV has a time limit on how long the door can stay open because, you know, they've got profit incentives. They've got places to go and people to meet, right? Uh, AVs should not be allowed, must not be allowed, to prejudice the the safety of any person because they're trying to get in or out of the car safely. And similarly, they should, in fact, make sure that everybody who is using the vehicle within reason is able to stop the vehicle on demand for any reason and safely egress the car, safely get out of the car. There can be lots and lots of reasons why somebody might want to do that. They see the the, they see the vehicle getting into a, a hazardous situation. There's a fire down the road. Uh, trees are on fire. They don't want to go there. It's got to be really clear and really evident and really easy for somebody to say, stop, I want to get out, and have the vehicle respond appropriately so that they can, in fact, get out safely. Um, what does safely mean? That's, you know, that's, that's open to a lot of interpretation. But again, somebody with authority should define what it means to get out of a car safely, right? I will you don't drop authority a, on. You don't drop a three-year-old on the edge of an interstate highway. Uh, you don't, you know, you don't stop at the top of a bridge that has no breakdown lane and tell people, okay, this is where you go. There's, you know, this is a, this is a perhaps a subtle, but a very important issue associated with the AVs. How do you assure the agency of the people who have not been trained extensively in using this vehicle, how do you how do you enable the agency of these people to stay safe and to not suffer from false imprisonment by a car that is not properly configured? This last point is is great because it makes me think of airlines, whereas the passengers aren't trained to deal with emergency landings and whatnot but the you know everyone knows hey find where your exit lane is and and what have you and they test systems to make sure everyone can get out of the plane within 90 seconds uh, but right. you also have trained staff on board ensuring and helping guide people 
So what you're saying here with the the must be able to safe ingress and egress, is this for like an AV taxi service? Um, because that I can understand. And I think that makes a very cool argument for some designs. Because if I'm in a wheelchair, for example, I, these things would have to have some sort of ramp or lift gate for me to get in and out of easily. But what if I just, you know, I'm buying the the new, you know, company X, Y, and Z, a super AV at home. Would you, would you require those to have that type of service too? Well, I think so. Uh, you know, uh, the, the AV shouldn't, shouldn't um, prejudice against, we'll say blind people, right? I mean, yeah. you'd say, well, the obvious thing to do is have a big red stop button somewhere in the car and any idiot can smash the stop button. Well, maybe you can't see it, right? Uh, maybe there, maybe everybody would say, well, you know, you need to have a, a push button on the floor that you can just stamp on and that'll, you know, get people out of the car in a hurry. Well, that's great. Unless you happen to have no use of your legs and you're in a wheelchair. So I, I think this issue requires some careful thought about how to implement it and how extensively to implement it. Certainly in the case of rideshare, yeah, you'd, you'd want that. What do they do in Zooks? I've got no idea. Wouldn't it be interesting to know? But there is no FMVSS requirement for on-demand emergency egress. I think there should be. Yeah, because so the first part of this where we're talking about not discriminating against people on the outside. So that's kind of the external facing cameras and sensors being able to identify humans in every different shape, form, color, uh, posture, clothing, and whatnot. And I think that's one technical issue, which is probably more software and hardware. Whereas this last one is kind of almost a a, uh, a fundamental redesign in some sense of how cars are are designed. I think I think it's a I think it's really interesting. And I think yeah, making it so anybody can easily get in and out of the cars. Is great. I know manufacturers will hate that, but um, yeah, I, I, and I think there's going to be you know more of a dedicated system for people who have particular disabilities. Like, I don't know if it makes sense to design every AV in America if we're intending them to be deployed for private use, particularly in that way from an efficiency standpoint. But what we do want to guarantee is that you know. I don't think that AVs are going to be privately owned by anyone for an incredibly long time. I won't be around. So I'll just go ahead and say that this, when AVs do come in the next 20 years, they're going to be owned by a company and parked in that company's garage. They're not going to be in your driveway and they're not, you know, they're going to need to make enough vehicles part of their fleet that can serve uh, disabled communities well and give them the same level of service that everyone else gets in, in, in autonomous vehicles. And until they can do that, um, we're going to still have a lot of questions about AVs. They've really been pushing their ability to help the disabled community with this in, 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 in the, their entire lobbying approach across the states and the federal government. But I'm still looking for a use case where an autonomous vehicle is better for a disabled person than having an Uber or a taxi driver who can assist you in and out of the vehicle and possibly even to your door. I haven't seen that yet. And so I'm not 
completely convinced by a lot of the arguments um, made by the industry around this right now. I think that they're using the disabled community kind of as a shield and as a boost to their lobbying abilities. No, I completely agree with you. And, uh, you know, consider the simple case of somebody who doesn't have use of their legs, who is trying to get to the airport to take a flight to some other place, right? They may have luggage, right? So how does the AV handle the luggage? Is it just going to leave it by the side of the road or, you know, how do you do that? So there's a lot of considerations and there'll be a lot of pragmatic considerations and discussions between here and there about how to do it, how extensively to do it, uh, do it for whom. But I think that as a principle, I think it's very clear that the AVs shall not prejudice for or against any group of living persons with respect to any other group. Yeah, this is fascinating. So, uh, Listeners, go to autosafety.org, search for our AV Bill of Rights, read through all of it, uh, send us your feedback on it. This is a, a living document that's evolving. Uh, you can hear kind of just from our discussion here. We're looking for your input and feedback. Uh, this would be, uh, this is, this is fascinating stuff. And again, we're trying to get way ahead of the curve. So your input now really helps the future of how these things will get rolled out. Um, and if you need some incentive, don't forget, this could save your life or your child's life uh, five years down the road. And while you're there, click that big red button that says donate. Become a monthly donor. Anyway, uh, we're going to let's uh, I'm gonna, I think we're going to get time for one more thing. And I'm going to choose uh, I'm going to choose what I want because I'm talking. So we've talked a lot about uh, EVs and EV battery technology and how much mining goes into it. Um, and Fred's made the point uh, numerous times that, hey, this isn't really as clean as we think it is. And I've taken the view, hey, it's early days. Things are going to get better. And this is kind of we're going to do a little foreshadowing to future guests that we'll have on in a couple of weeks. Yeah. But there's I, a I take the view, by the way, that I don't care how you make them, just make them lighter. <laughs> well, that that's part of it. They're, they're making them lighter. So uh, battery technology keeps evolving. And there's we've mentioned briefly in the past solid state batteries that will be less fire prone um, because, as we've discussed, to put out a, a EV battery fire requires 30 or so fire trucks. Well, now there's a company that they're working on uh, lithium sulfur batteries using graphene. And so this is higher energy density that they're lighter and safer than current chemistries. So there's a lot of work still evolving in there. And from our perspective, we want it to not only be, I mean, less environmentally um, negative than uh, current mining practices, which is probably better than the oil industry. But what do I know? And uh, lighter and safer and less fire prone, less fire prone is probably our our biggest thing that we can push so fred i imagine you've read through this article and do you have do you have positive feelings for the future of battery technology in the future everything will be better <laughs> we know that right we've established that so uh i mean here's the problem with batteries right everything that isn't grown is mined and you can't grow batteries so somewhere there's a hole in the ground that's associated with any battery now, in my mind, it makes sense to use materials that come from sources that have already been destroyed rather than move into pristine wilderness areas to get new materials. And this is a, a, a choice that has to be made. The more we go after lithium, cobalt, and nickel, the more we're going to degrade 
uh, previously pristine areas. So moving towards something like iron and sulfur, which is readily available from a lot of existing sources and really don't need to degrade any additional uh, wilderness areas, uh, would be a wonderful thing. Graphene is made from carbon, so there's a lot of carbon in the world. And, uh, you know, we can hope that they're going to, that we'll have a suitable energy density and uh, specific gravity and all those good things that are associated with better batteries in the future. I like it from the perspective that it looks like it's not going to cause any great environmental degradation compared to the current situation which, by the way, is bad enough. I'm not saying everything's benign now, but at least let's not make it any worse. Um, going back to our first principle, which is do no harm, right? Right. And uh, so I, I think there's a lot of that. There's also iron sulfur batteries that are being worked on, a lot of different battery technologies, uh, many of which stay away from exotic materials. A lot of them are heavier than what we've got now. Uh, people use the batteries, the lithium-ion batteries, because they're light and is the best technology that's available. Hard to know what five years down the road we might be saying about batteries. All right, fair enough. Well, uh, I think unless uh, anybody wants to discuss Piggly Wiggly, I think we've wrapped up another show. Piggly should, there's got to be some way to bring Piggly Wiggly back in, Michael. Well, I mean, I'd wear the T-shirt, but no one would see it. So no, no, I, we can just tell people he has a giant piggly wiggly tattoo over his forehead. Um, his next yeah. board meeting is going to be very interesting. So uh, it's henna. I'm gonna. It's going to be gone by then. <laughs> okay. okay, it was just made out of henna. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, hey, <laughs> listeners, thanks again for tuning in. Please like, subscribe, go on to iTunes podcast, give it five stars, go on to Stitcher Radio, give it. 20 stitches i don't know how they do things there uh but you know please thanks tell your friends we we've got a bunch of listeners we keep growing it's very exciting and uh you know make sure to donate you know become a monthly donor 10 bucks a month you know you do that you you save my 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 childish life not yeah, that's I mean, cheaper than that's cheaper than disney plus Exactly. Much cheaper than Disney Plus. It's uh, roughly the same price as the F1 subscriber series, um, which we haven't talked about F1. Oh, I like F1. It's so much fun. <laughs> All right. Thanks, listeners. Well, Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. We love you. Bye-bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.